All right, let's kind of dive in here. We are going to continue our series, walking through Gospel of Matthew, and I'm just going to read first, and then we'll kind of dive in. So our section today is kind of two stories put together, and you'll see why we kind of put them together, but let's start by reading the first half of it. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men uh, followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked, or, and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. All right, so a couple of kind of housekeeping things at the beginning of this, kind of to set the stage of where we are. The start of it is when Jesus went on from there. Anyone remember what we talked about last week? Where is the there Jesus is coming from? Anyone remember? Anyone? A synagogue leader's house. Yes. Jesus, a, a synagogue leader reached out to Jesus, said, my daughter is dead. Come raise her. So Jesus goes, does that. On the way there, that's where the bleeding woman comes and grabs his cloak, gets healed, all of that. That's just happened. Jesus is leaving there. Kind of all of that is in the background of what's happening now. And there's something interesting about the way these blind men refer to Jesus. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, this is a title that Jesus has. In other Gospels, it is used more prominently. However, in Matthew, this is only the third time it's come up. It comes up right at the very, very beginning, when in the genealogy of Jesus, that's how it opens. This is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, and it goes on from there. Second time is at his birth announcement. The angels are telling the shepherds, you know, Jesus has been born. They refer to him as the son of David. Hasn't referred to as the son of David, again, up until this point. And I think here it's just kind of reminding us of Jesus' messianic purpose. Because we're setting up something here coming up that we really want to be reminded of Jesus' Jewishness. Remember, Matthew is the gospel that is most Jewish-centric. It is the one written to a Jewish audience. And so this moniker is just popping up here because it's Jesus' place in things is going to be start to be questioned. But I think this is Matthew's way of just reminding us this is a Jewish story. All that kind of background ethos that we have from the Old Testament, bring that into this story. Bring that into what we're going to be talking about moving forward. Now the healing itself here really falls in line with all of the healings we've been talking about the last two or three months, right? It's pretty simple. It's Faith is what Jesus says is the leading cause here. You know, according to your faith, let it be done to you. There's a touch element involved. Jesus places hands upon them, and they're healed. Pretty simple. There's not an elaborate ritual. There's not any kind of grandiose thing. It's just faith. Jesus lays hands, and they're healed. So we're kind of starting to see a pattern. Nothing real different going on here until we get to the end down here. See that no one knows about this. Why? why? Why is Jesus going full Gandalf here and not wanting anyone to tell this? We've seen something kind of similar previously. Remember the man with leprosy. Jesus says, don't talk to anyone until you go through these rituals. That's kind of close, but it, this feels different because with that story, it was Jesus saying, 
if you talk to people, you'll legally get in trouble. Go fulfill these requirements, then you can go back into society. This feels different, right? This, go back, go back. See that no one knows about this. This doesn't seem to have a timeline. This just, this just feels like a more overarching ask or command. So why? Well, there's a couple of possible reasons. One of them that gets thrown out is that Jesus does not want the healing aspect of his ministry to overshadow his message. Right? Does, does that make sense? Jesus' message is that of a coming Messiah, that of forgiveness, that of redemption. And the healing aspects of it are to bolster that, are to show Jesus has authority to make these kind of claims, to support Jesus. And so potentially, Jesus could be worried about, well, now the healings are becoming the main thing and the message is getting lost. So maybe it's Jesus doesn't want the healings to overshadow or compete with the message he's trying to give. That's one possibility. The other one is potentially a timing issue. Jesus doesn't want to draw too much attention too early. If he gets on the radar of some of the religious leaders, as we'll see coming up here in a little bit, that potentially could cause issues. If he gets on the radar of Rome too early, that could potentially cause some issues. You know, Jesus knows, you know, in Matthew, I still got like 12 chapters of stuff to do. Like, we, we, we have a lot of stuff that has to happen here. Frustratingly, we don't know. There's no kind of reason given why Jesus does not want them to tell. But whatever the reason was, kind of a moot point, because they go out and tell everyone they, they don't listen. And I, that's maybe understandable, right? If you had something this amazing healed in you, it'd be really hard to not want to tell people about it. So they disobeyed, shouldn't do that, but you can kind of understand a little bit maybe why, just so excited. And now this, we saw this in the passage last week, that word about Jesus is starting to get out more. The passage, what, two weeks ago ended with, and word of this spread. So it's just laying in seeds that Jesus' kind of reputation is getting more and more known, getting more and more spread throughout the air. That's this healing story, pretty straightforward, not, not different from really a lot of the other ones we've seen. But then it's paired with the second half of this passage. Matthew 9, starting in verse 32. While they were going out, so after this healing, immediately from there, a man was demon-possessed and could not talk. They were brought to Jesus. When the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Okay. So, a couple things here. Oftentimes, in the ancient world, muteness was assumed to be the work of a demon. So if someone couldn't talk, the default assumption was, well, it, it must be a demon. We know that is obviously not the case, but that is what the mindset was at the time. And so that's why the demon and muteness are kind of paired together here in this passage. Now, this healing, I actually really like the way it's talked about. Because if you notice, it, it's almost passive. It's, all right, and when the demon was driven out, this happened. Like, the driving out of a demon is just kind of pushed to the side. It's, all right, we've seen this before. It's, we know it happened. Which I think is just really funny that at this point in the story, at this point in Jesus' ministry, what Matthew is relating to us more is 
not necessarily the actions Jesus is doing, but the reactions of people to these actions. That starts to be the thing to notice. So in the last story, it's, you know, people are amazed. They, they, they have to run out and tell everyone. They're so excited, so enamored with this. And now here, we have part of the crowd getting excited, you know. The crowd was amazed. We also have another half reacting very, very differently. And so the crowd that is amazed, the quote they say here, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This is actually a paraphrase from, I don't want to lie, Judges 19, um, toward the end of Judges. And what is interesting is that here, they're amazed. So this is coming off as a, a good thing, right? Like this is an amazing miracle. In the Judges story, it's the exact opposite. They're using this, you know, the, the full quote talking about nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel since we left. And the people are saying it after a horrendous act. It is something very, very negative. And so this acts as a really interesting bridge for us here. As the crowd is kind of taking this as a positive thing, like, wow, this is amazing, look at this. But it's acting as they bridge the Pharisees who are taking this, what's happening, as a negative thing. So, knowing the kind of Old Testament context of this kind of gives us a little bridge, a little kind of insight into how the crowd is diverging here. How one group is seeing this as, this is amazing, and the other group is seeing this as, oh no, this is the worst thing since we've been in Egypt. That other group is the Pharisees. And we have touched on the Pharisees before a little bit. Um, I found this great picture, and I, I had to use it. Um, so just kind of a quick recap of the Pharisees. They were a religious sect, um, started at the end of the last century before the Common Era, filling into the first century Common Era, so around Jesus' time. They were, their main idea was Israel has to be pure. Israel has to be good enough so that the Messiah will come. Their idea was if we can create a good enough place, a holy enough people, a perfect enough environment, then we will be ready for the Messiah. Then we will be ready for God's promises. And so how they wanted to do that was through laws. was through, we have the law of Moses. Let's build buffers around that so we definitely do not break. That's kind of was their mindset. And what's interesting about the Pharisees is because we read about them in their kind of headbutting with Jesus, we typically have a very negative view of them. However, at the time, the Pharisees were the class or the group of the people. They were the ones the people liked. So you the two big groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the aristocrats, like the high class, rich part of society. The general populace really didn't like them very much. The Pharisees were not that. The Pharisees were thought of as kind of like the everyday people. So they had the backing of the people. They were kind of the voice of the people. They were the largest sect and the most popular. So, really whatever this group said, the majority of people followed along with. So just kind of keep that in the background and kind of weave through the story that when the Pharisees go against Jesus and talk against Jesus, everyone else will kind of follow suit because this is the group that everyone believes in and follows. So that's kind of where they're coming from. Now, we need a little bit of background on what people thought of exorcism at the time. That's kind of the main part of it. And it's not 
Not this, as much as it would be cool, because this is a great movie, if you've never seen it, it's terrifying, but good movie. Um, that's not their view of, of what kind of what exorcism was. Exorcism, they believed very much, did happen. They believed very much was a powerful thing. But they didn't really trust the person who could do an exorcism. They were kind of afraid of them. They were really wanted to be kept at an arm's length. Like maybe one of the best examples of this is actually in the Old Testament in the book of Samuel. Saul, King Saul, is in a really bad situation, doesn't know what to do, wants to talk to Samuel, the prophet, who has unfortunately died. But Saul's like, nope, I really need to talk to Samuel. So it does something super, super illegal. Goes to the Witch of Endor, or as might be more accurately translated, the necromancer of Endor. Goes to this woman, he calls Saul up, calls Saul's spirit up, yeah, calls Samuel's spirit up, and Saul's like, hey, I need help. Samuel's not happy with this whole thing, and he just kind of goes in this big thing. But I think this really highlights the Saulness of all of the situation of, I know this person can do this. There is this power over demons, over death out there. But this person kind of lives up by themselves. I, Saul's not supposed to go to them. Like, this is just something we shouldn't really deal with as a people group. That's kind of in the background and where some of the Pharisees' arguments or ideas come from when we're talking about this idea of, well, if he's driving out demons, he has to be the prince of demons, right? That's fitting in with this, this is definitely happening, but we don't trust it. We want to kind of keep it at arm's length away from us. Now for me, this would be exceptionally frustrating if I was Jesus because seemingly we're doing these acts, these miracles, to try to bolster your claim messiahhood, to support I have the authority to talk to you as messiah, to talk about salvation, to talk about these kind of things. And what the Pharisees are doing is taking it in the exact opposite direction. How incredibly frustrating would that be, right? Can you think of a situation in your life or someone who constantly does that. That no matter what you do, it can be turned to be a negative for you. Like it, nothing you do is ever right or can ever be used to show you're trying to do good or you're trying to do right in their eyes. It's really frustrating, right? I have a couple of examples. Um, in college, I had a professor who I loved, great professor, but there was no pleasing this man. Um, during Every class, I had a number of classes with the professor, uh, you would have to write your final paper, you would have a four-day window to turn it in. You know, so during finals week, there was no classes, you could turn it in from Tuesday morning up to like Friday or something. As soon as you were done, it was break, it was, it was spring break or winter break or whatever it was. The first time I had a class with this professor, I'm like, I want to get this paper done early so I can have a longer break. So I kind of planned ahead, worked ahead, got everything done, turned it in on Tuesday. I get an email back from this professor saying like, hey, you still have a couple days to work on this. Here's some things to fix. Do more work on it. Okay. So he didn't want me to turn it in early because he thought that meant I wasn't, didn't put in enough time to it. The next semester when I had this professor again, I turned it in late. Not late, but I turned it in, you know, on Friday, the last day. Got a snippy email being like, oh, I see you're doing everything last minute now. 
seriously? Like, nothing. I mean, I really like this professor, but this, that was a weird, like, thing this, this, this guy had. of just, no matter what you did, they, they could find fault with it. It's very frustrating. Um, another example I thought of um, was this movie called Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. It is a comedy, and it's really kind of two movies going on. The main characters here, Tucker and Dale, these two, these two guys right here. Their movie is they're trying to, there's like a zombie apocalypse happens, it's this funny comedy, they're trying to save everyone. They are just two friends out there trying to fix up their cabin. The other movie is this group is trying to go camping out there, and they never actually see the zombies. All they see is really these two maniacs running around. And so the kind of funny tension of the movie is these two are doing everything they can to protect everyone, try to save everyone. The other group only sees them. They think they're the murderers. They think they're the big villains of, of what's happening. And so it creates this kind of tension of no matter what these two do, they're always framed as the bad guy. And this is an interesting movie that I really can't watch it because that tension just like gives me a knot in my stomach of just, oh, they are being so nice. They are trying so hard to be the best people out there and they're just being painted as the villain. They're just being painted as the villain. Like, I, I was, it's a weird movie to not be able to watch, but for some reason, I get halfway through it, and I'm just, no, I, I can't do it. They're, they're too nice. They're being treated too poorly. I can't do it. But these are kind of funny examples of when this can happen, of no matter how you try to frame things, no matter what you try to do for someone, it's not enough. So what are we, what are we supposed to do in situations like that? How do we respond? How are we supposed to internalize that? Well, Galatians has, I think, a good jumping off point for us to kind of start wrapping our head around this. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's an interesting statement. If I were pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I've never, you never really thought about those two kind of paired together, right? How do we take that moving forward? One thing we definitely don't do that I've seen with this passage is people take this passage as just full carte blanche to be a jerk. That is not what's going on here. You know, I've seen people say some just horrendous things like, no, no, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm doing this as a servant. I don't have to please everyone. Well, yeah, but you don't have to be a jerk to everyone, too. So that's not what's going on here. But really what is at the core of this is pleasing people, being a people pleaser. It's something a lot of people struggle with. Like, we want to make people happy. I know it's something I struggle with. Like, I, I want to make everyone around me happy. I want to make people like me. But it's something we can't do. According to this, if that's something we devote ourselves to, we can't be a servant of Christ doing it. Because we will never be able to make everyone happy around us, as the kind of previous examples. Even from this passage, even Jesus, even God could not make everyone happy. Still people who took what Jesus did and turned it into a negative. That should be kind of freeing for us that even God incarnate, Jesus, the Messiah, could not make everyone happy. So why should we feel like we need to try to do that? 
It's really hard. We want to make people happy. So I think this opens up an interesting question. What is the difference between people-pleasing, which this last passage says we definitely shouldn't be doing, right? What is the difference between that and loving your neighbor? Which she just says over and over again, very explicitly, we should be doing. Because there's a lot of overlap there, potentially. Like, there's some gray area. What, how do we distinguish between the two? I think a lot of it comes down to our heart. When we are people-pleasing, who are we people-pleasing for? I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time we are people-pleasing for ourselves. We want to make this person like me so that they'll like me, so that I'll feel better about myself. Or I want to do this for this person so that maybe they'll owe me a favor later and then it'll, it'll come back to me. Like, if we're really honest, people-pleasing comes back to I want to feel better about myself. We people-please for ourselves. Whereas, loving our neighbor about actually loving someone else. We don't love our neighbor. We don't love the people around us for us. If we do, that falls back into people-pleasing again, right? If we are genuinely loving the people around us, we're doing it for them. We're doing it for God. We're not entering that equation. We're not doing it so that then they will, you know, like us or do something for us. We're not loving our neighbor so that they'll come to church. We're not loving our neighbors so that they'll do something later. We're loving them purely just for them. I think that's the big kind of difference between people-pleasing and loving our neighbor. But that can be kind of hazy sometimes, right? If we're honest with ourselves and we're reflecting on our actions, we're like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to love them or am I doing this to make myself feel better? Like that's where a lot of the differences come in. And that's something you have to be honest with yourself about. Whoa, almost died there. Honest with yourself about and honest with God about. So take some time this week. Think about that. Think about people you interact with, things you do. Ask, is this, do I do this for me? Do I do this so I'll feel better, so people will like me more? Or am I doing this out of love for neighbor and love for God? Because loving our neighbors sometimes, it can be difficult. It is sometimes not always what's, quote unquote, best for us. It might cost us money, cost us time, cost us emotions, but it's ultimately worth it. I mean, think about Jesus. What was Jesus' supreme loving act for Jesus' neighbors, us, dying on the cross. That's kind of his high act, the ultimate act of love and sacrifice for me. And it cost Jesus everything, right? It wasn't a simple, easy choice. But it was a choice worth it for what grew out of it. Our salvation, our ability to come before God. Until we think about living our neighbors in the same way. It might cost us. It might cost us whatever. But ultimately, it, it'll be worth it to show love for the fruits that it might bear. The love we might pour into someone to better their lives. Reflect and show God's love. 
Because Jesus very easily could have been a, a people pleaser. He seems to have been charismatic enough. He had a following enough. It could have been very, very easy. Think about uh, Jesus' trial. Uh, the, they asked the people, all right, we have Barabbas and Jesus. Which, which one do you want to go free? Jesus, the one who was trying to love people, genuinely love people, or Barabbas, the people pleaser? Which one did the crowd choose? People pleaser. Had Jesus been a people pleaser, he very easily could have been this person, the one that the crowd was like, oh, no, yeah, that, we love that guy. He's great. But it ultimately would, wouldn't have got us salvation, wouldn't have bridged the gap between humanity and God. Loving our neighbor is what does that. If Jesus had been a people pleaser, we wouldn't be able to celebrate communion like, like we're getting ready to. That ultimate gift, that ultimate sacrifice, that ultimate showing of loving your neighbor.